Hello and welcome to the History of Vikings. Before we get into today's episode, I would just like to encourage everyone listening to consider supporting the podcast by visiting our sponsor, VKNG. VKNG provides handcrafted Nordic jewelry inspired by the myths, culture, and traditions of the Viking Age. VKNG is a company that I've been familiar with before I started this podcast, as it was recommended to me by one of my personal friends from Norway. All of their jewelry, designed for both men and women, is crafted with only the highest quality materials. VKNG crafts every piece of jewelry by hand and is a great way to symbolize your passion for one of Europe's most distinguished cultures. If you would like to support the history of Vikings, head over to vkngjewelry.com and save 20% off your entire order for the next 15 days by using the promo code NOAH20 or simply follow the link in the description of this episode. Today I'm joined by Dr. Nick Fields, a former Royal Marine Commando turned classical scholar and now a full-time historian and tour guide. Among his many previous works are books about ancient Greece and ancient Rome, which he has written on extensively. However, his latest book is titled God's Viking, Harold Hardrada, a book about the warrior king of Norway, who is commonly seen as the last great Viking king. Nick Fields, thank you so much for joining me today. You're most welcome, Noah. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Well, Harold Hardrada is a man who is, in many ways, larger than life. I mean, his military career, which started at, I believe it was age 15, he fought at the Battle of Stiklestad with his half-brother, St. Olaf, took him all over the entire world. As people pick up your book, God's Viking, Harold Hardrada, and read it, what is one thing that you would encourage them to keep in mind about Harold Hardrada, as opposed to any other Viking king? I suppose you should understand that Harold was really a man geared for war. I mean, he lived and breathed battle. Uh, Although he became king eventually of Norway after his many adventures, especially in uh, what is now Russia and uh, Greece and uh, the uh, the Holy Land, uh, he finally becomes king. But even as a king, he still was very adventurous in respect that he wanted to fight. Thus, his 20-year war with Denmark, which really did nothing for his own kingdom, but for his own esteem and glory. And of course, all the bards that sung about the battles he fought and the skirmishes he fought and the towns he burnt. And he was known as a great burner of towns. He had the nickname when he was fighting for the Byzantine Empire as the burner of the Bulgars. And he seemed to be fond of putting things to the torch. Uh, I think for Harold, he was not really a king. He was really, a, if you can go back to pagan Scandinavia before Christianity and all that, he really sort of lived the life of the old Norse warrior who fought and died and went up to Valhalla to join Odin and his many glorious warriors. So I suppose when you read the life of Harald in my book, you have to remember that although he's technically a Christian king, and remember his half-brother becomes a saint quickly, in fact, a year after his death at the Battle of uh, Stiklestad, he he is is, uh, made a saint and he still is the patron saint of Norway. 
uh, although his brother, half-brother, was a saint, a Christian saint, Harold himself was still very much a warrior of Odin, if you like. You know, he, he still he was still had one foot in each camp because to be a Christian king meant you joined the European club of other Christian kings, which obviously brought you wealth into your own kingdom. But also, you know, it, it, was, it must have rubbed on him that he had to be a Christian uh, because he really did live for war. Interesting, interesting, absolutely. Well, I mean, there's so many ways we could go with this conversation, but let's talk about Harold's time in Byzantium, often considered the high point of his military career. How did a person of noble birth in Norway during the Middle Ages end up serving for many years as a mercenary in Byzantium and Constantinople, of all places. Could you tell that story for listeners who might not be familiar? Okay. Well, you already mentioned his half-brother, St. Olaf, who loses his crown and kingdom at the Battle of Stiklestad. And alongside his half-brother was, of course, Harold, who was only 15 years, as far as we know, of age at the time. Uh, so after that battle, he, he became a prince without a kingdom. He, he was an exile. He was on the run. He was being hunted by, by his enemies. He uh, finally escapes because actually he, he had to hole up into a, in the forest in a, uh, a secluded uh, farmhouse because he was badly wounded during the battle. But uh, we know at least a year after that battle in uh, 1030, he had washed up in Kiev. Uh, Kiev at that time, a very Christian uh, state, a kingdom, run by uh, uh, another man who would become a saint, uh, Vladimir, Saint Vladimir as he's now known, but at the time he was known as Vladimir the Wise. Uh, he, he ruled a very powerful kingdom based on what is now modern Kiev in, in modern Russia, but at the time it was known as Kievan Rus. Uh, the Rus were actually believed to be descendants of Scandinavians who had traded up and down the great rivers of Russia with the Byzantine Empire. So there was this connection between Scandinavia in the north, uh, what is now Russia in the center, and the Byzantine Empire in, based around the Mediterranean, uh, mainly of trade, but also there was an exchange of warriors. You know, the Byzantine emperors used Scandinavian and Rus warriors as, as their bodyguard. You know, as early as 911, AD that we have records in the Byzantine Empire of uh, what they call the Rus serving the emperors of uh, Byzantium in various campaigns throughout the Mediterranean. So there was always this connection between the frozen north and the sunnier climes of, of the Mediterranean. So Harold ends up uh, with uh, Vladimir, and Vladimir was actually related through marriage with the Scandinavian kings. And there's also a close connection that Olaf himself uh, had left his son, Magnus, with Vladimir for protection when he went back to reclaim his crown and kingdom. So there was a close connection here. Uh, so obviously, Harold is seeking a way to eventually come back to Norway uh, and reclaim what he thinks is his kingdom and his crown. Uh, so he serves, actually, Vladimir for at least three or four years, as far as we can tell from the Chronicles, as a mercenary captain. 
uh, fighting in various skirmishes and wars that Vladimir was conducting to preserve his own state, mainly against uh, eastern steppe nomads. And also he was conducting a war uh, with uh, what is now Poland. Uh, so uh, there was plenty of employment for men like uh, 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 Harold, who uh, also, according to uh, Scandinavian sources, brought at least 500 men with him. Obviously, men like himself who had, uh, uh, had suffered because of the regime, uh, regime change in, in Norway. Uh, so they, they threw their lot in with Harold. Uh, also, Harold was very charismatic. He had this means of attracting like men to himself. So it served his purpose to have a, a large entourage. But having fought for three years at least, and we know he was made a captain in the army of Vladimir, uh, he, he eventually sails down the Dnieper to the Black Sea and ends up in Constantinople. And there he's employed in what is the famous Varangian Guard. These are the guard that were first established by one of the most famous Byzantine emperors, Basil the Second. Uh, he's now got the nickname Basil the Bulgar Slayer, but as far as we know, he was never called that during his own lifetime. But Basil had a very uneasy start to his rule. He was a very young man when he became the emperor of Constantinople, uh, and therefore he felt those surrounding him were out to get him, so he decided to surround himself with foreign mercenaries. The most famous of these foreign mercenaries were the Scandinavians who formed the uh, Varangian Guard. So there was already in Constantinople a place for Harold to go, uh, and thus that's how he's, he ends up in Constantinople sometime in 1041 or 1042, uh, and he, at the time the emperor is Michael IV. And there he meets also the famous Empress Zoe, and there's all sorts of uh, amorous stories about Harold, who's a very striking, blonde, blue-eyed, uh, at least uh, as far as we know, at least over six foot tall. So he was a very striking figure, very strong. Uh, he had a very charismatic, uh, forceful personality. Uh, uh, but uh, we can't really believe that there was some sort of connection pre between the famous Empress Zoe, who was well advanced in years by then anyway, uh, and the very young, thrusting, at least 18, 19-year-old uh, Norwegian prince. Uh, so that's how he ends up. And uh, for many, many years, he's, he fights in the Varangian Guard, at least till uh, 1043, 44, it depends uh, how you read the sources. But uh, he took part in many, many campaigns. Uh, we know he fought in Sicily. We know he fought throughout the Eastern Mediterranean against uh, Muslim pirates. We know he was fighting in uh, what is now Bulgaria against the nomads known as the Bulgars. Then uh, We also know he ended up in the uh, Holy Land. And there, apparently, he took a swim in the Jordan and was baptized in the Jordan. And that's a story about Harold. Uh, we also know he accrued a, a lot of wealth in the Holy Land. We believe that uh, there was a pact, a treaty between the Byzantine Emperor Michael IV and the current ruler of the Egyptian Caliphate, uh, who allowed the Byzantines to come and visit the holy sites in uh, Jerusalem uh, to play pilgrimage, etc., etc. And there's another story that. Uh, 
some of the pilgrims were actually members of the royal family from Constantinople, even perhaps Zoe herself or her sister, Azini. Uh, and it's believed that uh, as a chosen warrior, he escorted the uh, the royal family down to the holy sites of Jerusalem and there roundabouts. But also he took time to, uh, according to the Scandinavian sources at least, to clear the highways that led to Jerusalem, uh, which were being infested with uh, local bandits and characters like that who were taking the wealth and the jewels and everything else off the pilgrims that were going to the Holy Land. And we believe he must have extracted the coinage. Uh, sort of, He was running some sort of racket because we know that when he left the Holy Land, he was very wealthy. And even when he leaves Constantinople finally to go back north, he had accrued a vast amount of wealth, according to Snorri Sturluson. He, he, he hoarded all this wealth in Kiev. He kept sending it back, sending it back each year to be looked after by uh, Vladimir back in Kiev. So we know there was an ulterior motive to uh, Harold's, uh, in, uh, Harold's uh, time in the, in the Holy Land and elsewhere in the Byzantine Empire. It was to accrue wealth to actually... Uh, if you like, lubricate his uh, coming back to eventual ruling of Norway. So, uh, but they're very interesting times, um, especially if you read the accounts of uh, his time in Sicily, for example. There, they were the Byzantine Empire uh, used to uh, control Sicily, but it had fallen uh, under the uh, Muslims, uh, the Arabs, the Saracens, whatever you want to call them, and they were ruling it as their own kingdom, uh, but there was a problem, uh, a lot of piracy in the Mediterranean against trade with Constantinople, especially with the East, where various things were coming, uh, wealthy artifacts like silks, spices, etc., etc., uh, but a lot of trade was being intercepted by pirates, so the, Michael decided that uh, it was enough was enough, and we're going to clear Sicily of its pirates, and uh, we know that uh, Harold took part in the campaigns to clear Sicily of, of the Saracens uh, and reclaim it for the empire. Uh, but uh, according to Snorri, again, wonderful anecdotes about his time in Sicily. Uh, I mean, marvellous to read. I mean, the, such anecdotes as uh, pretending to be dead, uh, asking for a burial inside the, 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 the local church, inside the uh, besieged town, and then obviously popping out of the coffin to take the town. Another one is he's playing football outside the town gates, being besieged, and then suddenly he and his men grab their weapons and uh, attack the town. I mean, these sorts of stories, anecdotes have been told about various Viking uh, heroes, chieftains, for example, Ragnar Lothbrok, his son, uh, Bjorn Ironside, they also had these stories connected with them. So whether or not they were actually true, these stratagems to take besieged towns is another thing but they're, they're marvellous to read but we can we can believe that uh, Harold was that sort of character to sort of deceive uh, a town being besieged by using a trick such as this uh, I mean it's it, it's in the him his nature his mentality he would do these sort of things the other alternative of course that he would just put it to the torch I mean he was fond of torching places we know that for sure from various sources Byzantine and Scandinavian but uh, yes, a marvellous time he had, obviously, in, in Constantinople. And we know when he re finally returns to Constantinople, he gets involved in 
in, in court politics, which uh, mercenaries uh, should never do uh, because they always end up uh, either being liquidated or, or out of employment. But we know that uh, when Michael dies, Michael IV, he's, he's replaced by, by a, a relative from the same family, and he's also called Michael, so he's Michael V. Uh, but he it turns out to be a nasty piece of work. For example, he uh, he gets Zoe the Empress, who well loved by the people of Constantinople, packed off to a monastery because he fears her power, her influence, etc., etc. And he was very jealous of her. Uh, and uh, so there was a a revolt against Michael, Michael V, and it's believed that the, that uh, Harold himself got involved in this, supporting Zoe's faction against Michael's faction. And according to Harold himself, uh, he actually blinds uh, uh, Michael V when he's finally overthrown. This was a very common practice against in the Byzantine Empire. As a, an overthrown emperor was blinded and then packed off to monastery. Uh, you couldn't serve as emperor if you were deformed or uh, lost your sight or you were deaf or mute. Uh, and so Harold himself boasts, we know, in, uh, in, in the sagas deal with his life, that he himself put out the lights, as he says, of uh, the dethroned Michael V. So uh, a larger-than-life character. He, got, he, he was involved in every everything, politics, war, uh, plundering, you know, um, accruing large amounts of wealth for his own use, of course. Uh, so uh, it, almost uh, he's a saga character. Yes, I mean, I would say that. Well, a little while ago, you mentioned Snorri Sturluson, the Icelandic historian and poet who uh, wrote King Harold's saga, part of the collective work Heimskringla, the Old Norse King Sagas. No doubt you came across this source, which chronicles much of his time in Byzantium while writing your new book, God's Viking, Harold Hardrada. In your view, can this source, King Harold's saga, be used as an accurate historical reference for the life of King Harold Hardrada. Sort of, how does one separate fact from fiction uh, yeah. when reading this account? Yes, very, <laughs> very difficult. I mean, isn't it not that saying that politics, uh, what was it politics, poetry, and, and one other thing? Uh, uh, that's it. Politics, promises, and poetry are nothing but lies. Uh, and uh, <laughs> I suppose. When you look at the the, the, the the saga of the Norwegian kings, as uh, Snorri writes it, uh, I mean, most of it is, is actually poetry, isn't it? I mean, there's a lot of poetry in it. Uh, because, uh, uh, but, and then there's the question of a modern historian researcher uh, saying, uh, can we actually use this sort of thing to rebuild a biography of, of a Norwegian king like Harold? Yes and no, of course. I mean, we have the same problem in ancient history as we have in medieval history, where our sources are not what we would call up to modern standards. They're not uh, they're not uh, religiously researched. You know, a modern historian is there to just to tell the facts. That's the thing. I mean, you you search for all the source material, the evidence you have, you weigh it all up. And hopefully you come out with an answer. Uh, but for your ancient or medieval historian, call him an historian or a chronicler, uh, 
That's not the point. I mean, you're there to tell a tale. You're there to entertain. You're there to offer, obviously, facts as well, but also you're there to uh, add a bit of colour, to add a bit of uh, uh, meat to the bare bones of what you have in front of you. So people like Livy for the Roman history I deal with, a well-known Roman historian, or Snorri for the period that we're looking at here, I mean, they're there to entertain as well as to inform. Uh, so for modern historians, you know, the academic sort of historian, uh, this is not the sort of thing a historian should be doing. A historian should be there presenting the evidence, like in a court case, if you like. This is the evidence, and this is what we get from this evidence. Uh, but some of it can be as dull as dust. So when you go back to people like Snorri, yes, he had... Tradition, he had oral tradition, because remember in Scandinavia, Norway, Sweden, Denmark, Iceland, of course, where he came from, a lot of the information he has is come via way of oral tradition, ballads, poetry, you know, long dark nights in the winter, people entertained in their long houses by glorious stories of the past about famous warriors, famous heroes, famous kings like Harold. And we know that Harold himself, during his own lifetime, there were many stories told about him. There's the famous story that Snorri tells when he's wintering in his uh, in, in his long house uh, up in his capital in Norway. That uh, there's one, you know, he's very fond of Icelandic uh, uh, skalds, bards, uh, poets, uh, and he was entertained long and hard by these uh, men. He was very fond of Icelandic and he had lots of them surrounding him but there was one particular one and one wind, long winter he was telling a whole heap of stories and singing and songs etc and then suddenly he fell silent and Harold asked him why you've gone silent so, well I've, I've sung I've spoken everything I've known except for one last thing and the king asked him and what's that it's a story about you and your adventures in, in the holy land in Byzantine, etc., etc. Uh, but I'm a bit worried about singing it. <laughs> so, but Harold said, "Oh, we'll save that for the Yuletide." So, over the 13 nights of Yuletide, he actually recounts everything. But Snorri says at the end of it, uh, when Harold said, "Where did you get all this information?" He said, "Well, I got it from one of your standard bearers during the, the battles you fought for for the Byzantine Empire as the Rangian guard." So from that story, you get ideas that these tales or stories or anecdotes were actually passed on. So in this particular case, there was a standard bearer who stood beside Harold when he was a prince fighting in the Varangian Guard. Uh, And therefore, in that sense, we say, oh, yeah, it must be at least some part true because Harold himself would know the story because he was there. So And also, as Snorri says, these skulls, these uh, bards, they... They're, they're entertaining kings. Kings are powerful men. Kings can take your life. You're not going to sit there and tell them stories that are lies. You're going to tell them, as far as you know, the truth. Because what do they know? They probably know part of the story already. So in a sense, yes, as long as you use Snorri with caution and also look at other sources. We have many other chronicles from the period. Uh, we have the what is known as the Rotten Vellum, the Beautiful Vellum. Uh, there's many other saga stories which are told outside of Snorri's uh, corpus. So we have to weigh these all up and 
look at them. So yes, I I, I would advise people to pick up uh, the Hemiskrina uh, and look at it because it's not only entertaining, but there is enough information there for you to actually look at one of the various kings, the 12, 13 that he actually writes about, uh, and, and get some idea of their life. It, so it's biographical and it is historical, uh, but it's also entertaining, and the poetry is marvellous anyway. And for the Norse, poetry was everything. And Harold himself, as Snorri says, was a, a, an accomplished poet himself. He was well, first, I mean, he would go and he's not only sing his own praises, of course he would, but uh, he also mentions other things, like there's a wonderful poem about when he first encounters the beauty of Constantinople. Uh, and it's marvellous stuff like that. It also talks about these various skirmishes, these various battles, uh, and itself, it's, it's wonderful poetry from uh, Frozen North. Uh, so, yes, Snorri, yes, I'd use him. Certainly, certainly. Well, many people have argued that the year 1066 marked the end of the Viking Age, of course, referring to the death of Harold Hardrada at the Battle of Stamford Bridge. What do you make of this claim? And how did Harold's death at Stamford Bridge really mark the end of a sort of era, whether that era be the Viking Age or whether that be his rule over Norway? Now, I suppose yeah, we like to com, uh, com, put things into uh, compartments. I mean, we always like to have dates because for us humans, it's uh, it's useful for hanging things off. They like pegs, dates, aren't they? You can hang this that that off. So we like to set things up like uh, so. Ten sixty six, because I suppose ten sixty six is a dramatic year for the Kingdom of England. The Kingdom of England before ten sixty six is in the orbit of the Scandinavian world. It starts in that orbit with Canute when he comes over uh, as a very young, well, a teenager, in fact, with his father, Sven Falkbeard, uh, the Danish king, and they start uh, raiding and plundering the rich Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, Mercia, Wessex, uh, Northumbria, and all that. Uh, uh, but then they, uh, Canute himself decides to stay and set himself up as the, as the new king of, of, of what is now the Kingdom of England. And Canute himself used England not only for its wealth and manpower, but also as its base. I mean, he only leaves England on a few occasions to visit the rest of his empire in Norway, uh, Sweden and uh, Denmark. So when... 1066 comes about, we have to remember, up to that point, the Kingdom of England is firmly entrenched in the Scandinavian world. And when you talk about Anglo-Saxons, you really should talk about Anglo-Scandinavia, a mix of the peoples. And uh, Canute brought his own jarls, as they call earls, over with him, warriors, etc., etc. So there was a mingling of the two peoples, English or the Saxon, and uh, the, the Northmen. But 1066, that changes dramatically with the conquest of the kingdom by William the Conqueror, as he was known. Uh, and that drags what was really a Scandinavian kingdom into the European sphere of things like uh, the, the, the Frankish kings, the Norman dukes, uh, closer connections with Rome uh, by way of of religion, etc., etc., 
so yes, I suppose in the sense 1066 and all that, if you want to use that term, is a very important date. It's also important for this is, as you've already mentioned, the year that Harold dies. We always remember 1066 as the Battle of Hastings on the 14th of October of that year. But we, it's easy to forget that uh, the previous month, on the 25th of September, at Stamford Bridge, there, Harold fight, is fighting for the kingdom himself. His claim to the crown of, Eng, of the kingdom of England is very tenuous, to say the least. It was based on a, a very vague treaty between his uh, nephew, Magnus, the son of O St. Olaf, who was ruling Norway before Harold comes back to claim the crown, and the son of Canute, Harder Canute, he was called by the English, uh, and the two, Magnus and Harder Canute, draw up a treaty between them 30 years previous to 1066, so in the, in the 1030s, probably around about 1035, 1036. They draw up a treaty saying that if either one of them dies without a male issue, the other would inherit the kingdom. At the time, Magnus was ruling both Norway and Denmark, and Hardekanut was ruling the kingdom of England. And this is what Harold based his claim on for being the next king of England after Edward the Confessor. Uh, but as we know, when Edward the Confessor died, it's Harold Godwinson who takes the crown. He has a hasty burial of uh, the previous king, takes the crown, and the day after. Uh, but I won't go into the nitty-gritty of the, the politics of whether William the Conqueror had a better claim, or Harold of Norway had a better claim, or Harold Godwinson himself is a, a, a political minefield. But uh, basically, there's three men who want to be the king of the Kingdom of England. Harold Godwinson, who's already taken the crown, William of Norway, and Harold of Norway. So uh, it's a freeway contest. Harold lands first in September. He wins the first battle on the 20th of September at a place called Fulford Gate. There he beats two earls, the Earl of Mercia and the Earl of Umbria. In his army is also the uh, Exile of Northumbria, the brother of Harold Godwinson, Tosti, who also has uh, a grudge against his brother, the now King Harold of England. Uh, so there they beat the uh, Anglo Saxon army or the Saxon army. Uh, and the next day after the battle, they have a treaty with the two earls who survived the battle uh, to exchange hostages. This will be taking place in York. It is agreed on the 25th of September. Harold Tostig will go to York to claim their hostages. Uh, but unknown to them that Harold Godwinson has got his army together because he's been protecting the southern coast of his kingdom because he knows that William the Conqueror is getting together his army for an of the kingdom. So... In six days, he manages to march from London to York, which is some rapid march, believe me. But he manages to get there. And so when Harold and Tostig are on their way to York to go, what they believe is just to go and collect hostages and formalize the uh, 
the ins and outs of the treaty that they've uh, hammered out. Uh, little do they know that uh, Harold Godwinson has arrived with his army, and this what leads to the uh, the uh, the Battle of Stamford Bridge on the 25th of September. Now, now according to the chronicle, which we know as the uh, Rotten Vellum, uh, Morgenson uh, Schema, uh, Harold was so confident that he uh, and the weather was so hot that he said to his men, oh, you don't need your, your mail, your mail shirts. You can leave those behind in the ships, the 300 ships that he brought with him with his invasion force. We'll just march along. And according to the, the, uh, the, the chronicle that I was talking about, the, uh, the rotten skin, as it's known, uh, uh, they, they, they went along to York as if it was some sort of feast day holiday. Uh, they were mirthful. They were happy. The sun was... Uh, was shining, etc., etc. So you get this wonderful picture of Harold and his army is sort of gaily marching along to York, unbeknown to them that uh, Harold Godwinson, the King of England, has already got there, uh, and they were rather surprised uh, because before they actually see Harold's army, they they look in the distance and they see what is like uh, the sun shining off the icicles of their own homeland, as they said in. Uh, <laughs> and then Tostig says, well, not actually, that's actually the male arm of my brother's army. Uh, so they were rather shocked. So they were actually a disadvantage at Stamford Bridge, but it was a long, hard-fought battle. Um, we know that Harold himself, at the end of it, knew that he was going to lose. And as far as we know, he went berserk. He became a berserker. He grabbed his sword went running into the uh, enemy ranks, uh, wielding his sword two-handed, and uh, his death blow was an arrow into the throat, which is interesting because there was no Harold Godwinson at Hastings would take an arrow in the eye. So there's this uh, dichotomy of uh, the deaths of the two kings by arrow. But anyway, we know that was the end of Harold. Uh, his army is uh, decimated, and of the 300 ships, only two, 20 of them were needed to take what was left of his army back to Norway, including his son, who actually survives the battle. Uh, so that was the end of Harold. Uh, a bit of a disappointing end, I suppose, but uh, I suppose if you read Snorri uh, in the saga of Harold, uh, he, his end was glorious. He, he, he would have gone to Valhalla if he was a pagan king because uh, he charges off on his own into the enemy ranks, knowing that all is lost, but he's going to die gloriously, and he's going to remember that he remembered for his death, and certainly we know he is remembered the way he died. Uh, we also know that Harold Godwinson said that he would inherit seven feet of English soil, as much more he's needed for as he is at tall. Uh, so, you know, there's lots of uh, wonderful, well, I wouldn't say mess, uh, anecdotes about the end of Harold at Stamford Bridge. So, yes, to go back to your question, uh, 1066, yes, uh, although we do say uh, it's a peg to hang things off, it was a very important date for the history of the Kingdom of England. Also, a very important date for the history of the Kingdom of Norway because they lost their king. Uh, but it wasn't really the end of the Viking Age in a sense that really if you want to have the last Viking king, that will be the grandson of Harold, 
and that is Magnus Bareleg or Barefoot, whichever way you want to take his Scandinavian nickname, because he still goes a Viking as a king, and we know he himself, like his grandfather, dies in a foreign land. He actually dies in Ireland uh, at the very beginning of the next century, 12th century. Uh, there again, claiming another crown, which really didn't belong to him, but uh, he was very much, uh, very much like his uh, grandfather Harold. So, but uh, yes, it's if you look at Harold's life in the whole, in the round, in a sense of all the adventures he had, the two battles that bookend his life, Stickelstad and then Stamford Bridge, and all that happens in between all the various adventures he has in various parts of the world, in Russia, in, in, in the East Mediterranean, in Sicily, North Africa, in the Holy Land, in Bulgaria, etc., etc. In that sense, yes, he is the last of the great Vikings. Yes, and 1066 you can take as end of the Viking era. Yes. Indeed. Well, Dr. Nick Fields, it's been such a pleasure having you on the podcast today. And let me just encourage all of our listeners to go out and purchase a copy of your book, God's Viking, Harold Hardrada, which I've placed a link to in the description below. But Dr. Fields, thanks so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure, Noah, honestly. It's, uh, in fact, it's the first time I've ever done a podcast. So uh, it's uh, been a, 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 well, an adventure for me as well, in this sense. Uh, amazing what technology can do. Thank you all so much for listening today to the History of Vikings. If you enjoyed the podcast and would like to consider supporting the show, visit today's sponsor, VKNG. VKNG handcrafts Norse jewelry inspired by the mythology and culture of the Viking Age. All of their products are made with the highest quality materials and are designed for both men and women. If you're like me and have a deep passion for Nordic history and would like to demonstrate that passion, head over to vkngjewelry.com and save 20% off your entire order for the next 15 days by using the promo code NOAA20 or simply follow the link in the description of this episode. Thanks again for listening today to the History of Vikings. Be sure to join us right here again next week. <laughs> <laughs>